Hi, Sarah. Hi, Josh. Welcome back to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, episode 23. Check out all of our archives online on Descent's website. You can also download us into your life on iTunes. This week, as every week, we start with a roundup of recent news in labor. First, a topic that we've discussed both in the roundup and in an extensive interview I did with our own Sarah Jaffe in the past about feminism and care work and labor and a day without care. The very long-awaited change to Fair Labor Standard Act Department of Labor rules around home care workers, workers who are caring in the home, who are part of the category of domestic workers that is excluded from both employment law and from labor law. This rule change, first promised at the end of 2011, actually came through in final form this week. So longtime listeners of the podcast will know that due to a combination of racism, sexism, and short-sightedness, workers who clean and care in the home generally are both excluded from basic protections around working conditions, like the minimum wage and overtime, and excluded from having the legal right to win collective bargaining to change those conditions. And we've talked about ways that domestic workers are organizing anyway to try to improve their working conditions and their voice on the job. These regulations are arguably the most significant pro-labor regulatory change to come out of the Obama administration, at least out of the Department of Labor, where we've seen other such changes scrapped, delayed, or defunded. And one thing to note about this regulation is that it will take over a year to go into effect. As was noted on a conference call by the administration, wage and hour rules often go into effect within two months. In this case, in response to criticisms, including criticisms from some disability rights organizations that argued that it would not be possible to provide sufficient care if these regulations, again, just extending wage and hour rules to these workers were in effect. In an interview I did for The Nation with Ai Jen Poo, she suggested that really any more than a year would be an excessive delay. In slightly less cheerful political news, um, I know, I know, from Congress, because we know Congress is where all good ideas go to die. As we speak, basically, House Republicans are hustling enough votes. We are recording on Thursday evening, I should say. Are hustling to get enough votes to pass a massive cut to the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, better known as SNAP or food stamps. They are calling this, in a little intriguing bit of uh, Orwellian doublespeak, the Nutrition Reform and Work Opportunity Act. It would cut $39 billion out of SNAP between 2014 and 2023 and is expected to boot about 3.8 million people off of their SNAP benefits in 2014 alone if they manage to squirt this evil thing through the Senate. Luckily, the Senate isn't quite as useless as the House or quite as cold-hearted and evil as the House. Um, <laughs> Damning with faint praise, are we? I, you know, you'll just have to keep an eye out for the next issue of In These Times to see what I think of the Senate. I've got a piece in the works. Um, next print magazine. In any Greatest case, <laughs> legislative body of the year or of all time? One that should perhaps be abolished but has a few decent people in it. We'll just say that. In any case, 
Um, as our friend, friend of the podcast, Sheila Bappett at Real- RH Reality Check noted, to qualify for food stamps, a three-person family's gross monthly income generally must be at or below 130% of the poverty line or $2,069 a month, about $24,800 a year. That's for a three-person family. While people of many backgrounds rely on food stamps, she noted African-Americans do so disproportionately. And maybe the most depressing thing in her particular piece, which we will link to on our website, is that there are a few Democrats who are willing to vote along with the cold-hearted Republicans to vote for cuts to this program. Meanwhile, there are also some Republicans who realize that this is a terrible idea. But... As if, you know, all of this wasn't bad enough, um, California Republican Dana Rohrabacher wants to make people who get these benefits pass through the E-Verify program, which was created, Josh is laughing over here with a very depressed sort of laugh, uh, a program that was designed to determine whether immigrants were eligible to work legally in this country, but very often it produces false positives and all sorts of other problems, and also there are other controls on who gets access to SNAP in the first place. In any case, we talked recently with Laura Claussen about the punitive measures that all too many politicians want to put in place on any program that actually helps people survive in the world's worst economy. Um, Okay, maybe not world's worst. (laughs) This is a labor story because cuts to programs like this um, that actually have helped keep millions of people above the poverty line force more people into desperation for a job, any job, and make them much less willing to stand up for their rights. If you don't get any access to food other than what little money you can scramble together from any job you can possibly get imagine what that actually means of course for republicans that's all part of the plan and as i said several democrats speaking of republicans we've talked before about the rise of what i've called alt labor this array of labor groups that are not unions as we understand them under current labor law groups that are representing workers who either are explicitly excluded under labor law from collective bargaining rights or simply have not won collective bargaining with their boss in part due to the many economic and legal and political obstacles to doing so. The perhaps most telling sign of the success, limited and fragile though it may be that these groups have had, is that they're now under attack by business and by congressional Republicans. Those pesky congressional Republicans getting involved in everything. So on Thursday, a House subcommittee held a hearing uh, on what was benignly titled the future of workplace organizing, or the future of union organizing. Mm-hmm. These groups, including folks from the Mackinac Center in a uh, pre-hearing conference call, have observed that some of these groups have gotten traction and that, as I and others have written about, these groups sometimes have legal advantages along with the disadvantages that come with not being seen as a union under the law. There are advantages in terms of the flexibility to exercise what many listeners would think of as free speech rights, to go to a company and picket, hold them accountable for their role in a supply chain, even if they're not legally considered the employer of the workers who are doing the picketing. And it, these groups argue these right-wing groups argue that these other organizations are skirting and evading the law and that they're union front groups. Our listeners will know that some of these groups are seated and instigated and closely tied to unions. Others emerged in large part due to perceived 
failures or hostility from unions, it is certainly true that some of these groups in some situations have found legal advantages to not being stuck within the confines of U.S. labor law. Now, whether that's an indictment of these groups or an indictment of U.S. labor law is in the eye of the beholder. We've seen a lot of anniversaries in the last couple of weeks, the anniversary of September 11th, of course, the anniversary of the financial crisis, which brought us the unexpected pleasure of Larry Summers dropping out of consideration for the Fed. This week on Tuesday was the second anniversary of Occupy Wall Street. Here in New York, I had the pleasure of joining a large group of um, unions and community groups on a rally in March for the financial transaction tax, which is, of course, has been a demand of the National Nurses United for quite a while since before Occupy Wall Street. Financial transaction tax is a fabulous little thing that basically puts a very small tax, one half of 1% on the sale of stocks, bonds, securities, any of those things that most people in the country don't own or sell much of. It is designed specifically to target the kind of crazy high-frequency trading that is going on constantly. And so because a few people are trading a lot of things very quickly, this could raise a lot of money without really hitting anybody other than the intended recipients. The nurses have been calling for this as a way to fund universal health care, as a way to fund, um, lately they've brought in the question of rebuilding after Superstorm Sandy. AIDS and HIV activists join this to demand funding for more AIDS research. They're saying that the information is there that we could actually end the AIDS epidemic if it, we actually put proper money into it. And so this March, it started out outside the UN stopped outside of the MTA office here in New York, where um, the two transit workers unions spoke about the way that Wall Street's gambling on uh, the tools used to fund the MTA, that, you know, interest rate swaps and such fun, arcane things are causing cuts to jobs, layoffs, um, service cuts, and fare hikes. Meanwhile, all this money is going into Wall Street's pockets. The whole thing wound up outside of the offices of the SUNY Chancellor, where longtime listeners may remember, I not too long ago saw um, mayoral candidate Bill de Blasio, city council member Steve Levin, get arrested with a bunch of nurses and community activists to keep open Long Island College Hospital. So speaking of nurses and hospitals and unions. Today, we have the opportunity to talk a bit more about the story of hospital closure fights here in New York, the role that nurses and healthcare unions have played. This is a topic that Sarah has been on relentlessly and perceptively. And Some would say time. obsessively. There are worse accusations one could level. <laughs> so Sarah, for our listeners, those yes. who, even if they tune in to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast brought to you by producer Natasha Lewis each week, may not know all of the ins and outs of this situation, especially if they're listening from Mozambique or Australia. What is it that has brought New York City to the point of hospital closures? Well, I mean, the big answer to that is capitalism, but <laughs> right, the fact that we have a system, a healthcare system that is run instead of by 
a health department that is interested in making sure that everybody has access to care. It's run by a whole bunch of different competing private entities. And there are, it will probably not surprise anyone listening to this to know, different levels of profitability between different hospitals, between different kinds of care provided in different hospitals, depending on whether patients have insurance, good insurance, bad insurance, no insurance, Medicaid, Medicare, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so in the case of Long Island College Hospital, which we've talked about, the people who ran it, um, one health company handed it off to SUNY, the State University of New York downstate, a couple of years ago with the understanding that SUNY was going to keep it open and run it as a hospital. That, of course, has been a struggle that you've heard about a bunch on this podcast because I talk about it all the time that's been going on since February. So in that particular case, the land that this hospital is on is in a very desirable location, real estate-wise, and uh, the fear is essentially that they want to sell it off for condos. And so what's the latest on this situation? The latest on that particular hospital actually has a lot of implications for some of these other hospital fights that are going on across the city, because you didn't think we were in danger of losing just one hospital, did you? I spoke about one of these decisions recently where a judge stepped in to essentially invalidate SUNY Downstate's claim to the hospital, saying that when they took it over, they did not necessarily do so in good faith, that their agreement was that they would have to run it, not run it into the ground. And so that judge stepped in. What will result from that decision is still being worked out. But there was another lawsuit that had been filed by the New York State Nurses Association, 1199 SEIU, and a group of doctors calling themselves concerned physicians. And this lawsuit was in a different judge's court. And this one was essentially asking him to halt the closure plan and prevent the hospital from closing, which he ruled that he would do, and also ruled that the State Department of Health is essentially not doing its job very well. That the, Depart- the Department of Health in the past has actually intervened to keep departments at this particular hospital from closing, that it has abdicated its responsibility to make sure that there is health care in the community that people can adequately access, and instead has basically served to rubber stamp, and the rubber stamp is actually taken from the judge's decision, the decisions of these different entities. So in effect, what he ruled is that the closing plan is invalid, but also that the Department of Health has to go back and rewrite its rules for how it approves of hospital closures. So according to um, the nurses' union reps that I spoke to, this account amounts to a de facto moratorium on hospital closings for a little while until they can figure this out. Now, of course, they want to appeal. Of course, this is not over. You didn't think it would be over. But that's two big wins in a row for the nurses, the hospital workers with 1199, the doctors who want to run the hospital themselves now, and the community who has been solidly behind this. What is striking to you about the approach that the nurses have taken to this fight? I mean, in the sense of the priority they've placed on it, in yeah. the sense of the strategy that they've taken up, is there is there something here that shouldn't be taken for granted? Oh, Yeah. Absolutely. 
The New York State Nurses Association has only been sort of this kind of fighting union for a couple of years now. They're really finding their footing, I think, with this hospital fight. A reform slate took over in 2011 and really changed the way that this union did business. And I spoke to um, Linda O'Neill, one of the nurses at Long Island College Hospital, and she was like, you know, this is all really different for us that we now have a fighting union. And what they've done really is, I mean, they've had the legal battles, the legal strategy, certainly. But more than anything, they've really made a public spectacle of what's going on there. They've organized rallies constantly. There's always been something they marched across. If you go look at, we'll link this on the website, my most recent piece on this at In These Times, there's a lovely photo of the march across Brooklyn Bridge that the nurses and supporters did as a funeral march for healthcare in Brooklyn. They had the Race for Care, which I, I think I spoke about on this podcast before, where they um, staged a race from Red Hook, which is a very, very underserved community that also was hit really hard by Hurricane Sandy. Um, they staged a race to three different hospitals to see how long it would take residents in that neighborhood to get care if Litch, Long Island College Hospital, was closed. They've really, really dramatized this, managed to draw in a lot of elected officials. Granted, it's an election year, so all the elected officials are looking for any chance to get in front of a microphone that they possibly can, and we'll see what happens when the election is over. But it, there's absolutely no doubt that this issue became central to Bill de Blasio's campaign and was one of the things that put him in the lead. So those elected officials, <sighs> yes. one of the things that came up at the AFL-CIO convention, of course, as we discussed last week, is right. this question of how unions deal with elected officials, to what extent they should prioritize politics, to what extent they should make demands, hold elected officials accountable, how that can or can't be done. Yeah. One, one thing I noticed, correct me if I'm wrong, is that Bill de Blasio was endorsed by Nisna after he had at least once gotten arrested in these oh, yeah. protests. And, and sometime after this issue had se at least seemed to become a focus of the press coverage around him at the same time that yeah. he was becoming a focus of the press coverage around it. It's interesting because there were some unions that came out very early and made some endorsements in the mayoral race here. And, well, most of them lost. Um, but Nice Note was not sure, from what my sources tell me, was not sure that they were going to make any political endorsements at all up until very close to the actual primary date. They endorsed de Blasio, they endorsed Steve Levin, who also got arrested for them. They endorsed Tish James, who has been, um, Tish James is, for reference, the city council member that represents my district, which is part of Brooklyn. She's also been involved. She went up to, you know, the hospital that where they closed the labor and delivery ward in the Bronx. They endorsed people who had already thrown down for them. Now, the next step, of course, is once those people presumably get an office, Tish James still has to win a runoff. De Blasio still has to win a general election, um, which it is, of, it is presumed that he will do. Once those politicians get in office, the next question is whether people have better access for having made those endorsements, whether people have some ability to hold them accountable. The promises that have been made can disappear very easily. But I would say that, if yes, if unions are going to be endorsing politicians, which I don't think is always a terrible strategy, particularly here in, in places like New York, where that endorsement actually carries a lot of weight. Mm -hmm. 
right? It means a lot. Tish James had almost no, she had, I think, no television ads. She had a huge funding disadvantage. And she came in first in the primary of five different candidates, largely because she had the backing of most of the major unions and most of the community groups. So in a city like this where that actually carries weight, it can be really useful to them to make endorsements. But yeah, I think that it was quite smart of certain unions to wait a little while to see who was actually going to be on their side and how far those people were going to go. And what about the relationship between the organizing and the protests here and the judges and the law? As I mentioned before, when I talked about this one judge, her name is Carolyn Demarest, I believe. I may not be pronouncing that right. I'm sorry, judge, if I'm pronouncing your last name wrong. She was not a judge who had heard any of these lawsuits that had actually been filed. She literally heard about the fight because it was a constant feature in the news. And she went and acted because of what she heard, because the unions made this an issue. As we talked about a little bit last week as in our brief digression as to whether judges are political actors or not, that's really a point that people shouldn't forget when we talk about issues like this, fights like this, fights in the community, is that the wishes of the community being heard loud and clear do actually have an impact on judges. The other judge, of course, has been hearing these arguments for months now. He's probably sick of hearing them, but... <laughs> But, you know, he also took into account the fact that the community was involved, that on the day that he issued his ruling, there was um, another lawsuit that Bill de Blasio had actually filed to keep the hospital open when they were going to close it, one of the many times they were trying to close it. And de Blasio had filed that lawsuit along with several community associations, and the judge ruled that actually de Blasio, as a public official, because he's the current public advocate, hadn't didn't have the right to do that, but these community associations did. Hmm. So, again, the ongoing involvement of the community has really helped, and the, the ability of these unions to really do community organizing has been really important here. Um, we've talked about this a lot in terms of the Chicago Teachers Union, and it's a very similar strategy, and it's a very similar fight in a lot of ways, right? You're getting down into something that you're trying to save your job, but you're also somebody whose job is caring for other people, looking after other people, being aware of their best interests. And for nurses, for the day that I went into the hospital and was talking to a bunch of the nurses there, they were telling me about getting phone calls. People are calling the hospital, seeing if they can hire nurses away because there's a massive nursing shortage. Mm. These are not people who are going to be unemployed for very long, most of them, if the hospital did close. But their struggle was much more about keeping open this particular facility in this community, and they really managed to make that visible and make that connection with the community in order to bring together a big, diverse group of people who are interested in keeping this institution. So what's next in this fight? Oh, God. (laughs) Waiting for more judges to issue more rulings and more orders on what needs to be done next. Um, It's going to be interesting. They have to find, according to, in Judge Damaris's court, they have to find a new partner to take over operation of the hospital because she ruled that SUNY is going to lose that privilege. Some of the doctors are looking for a partner who will partner with them so that they can essentially be in charge of the hospital, which would be a very interesting move. And meanwhile, as I said, there are other hospitals facing the cuts. 
So I mentioned the labor and delivery ward closing at North Central Bronx Hospital. Interfaith Hospital, which is actually the one that is about five blocks from my house, is also on the chopping block. That is affected by Judge Baines's ruling about what the State Department of Health has to do, but they have already approved a closure plan for that hospital. So, I mean, what happens is that people keep fighting, that hopefully we get a sympathetic mayor. However, most of these are decisions that are made on the state level. And Andrew Cuomo, our quasi-democratic governor, has not shown a whole lot of interest in getting involved, stopping the closures, or, well, much of what the community cares about. So (laughs) we'll have to see. Again, you can find all of Sarah's great reporting on this topic at In These Times, as well as her interviews with the aforementioned Bill de Blasio and Tish James. This brings us to the end of episode 23 of Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, produced by the wonderful Natasha Lewis and our indefatigable editor, Sarah Leonard. Long time, 23-week listeners will know, this is when we say... I wish I wrote that. Sarah, if you stopped your crazy, frantic, journalism-infused day for a moment of pure envy at something that someone else wrote, what would it be? I actually just read this piece this afternoon and had to change my ARG because I made a much louder ARG, although I don't think any of mine are ever quite as loud as Josh's. ARG substitution. ARG substitution. So Molly Ball at The Atlantic has a piece called, Did This Little Election Strike a Big Blow to Education Reform? And uh, longtime listeners will know this is a topic we talked about a lot and that we have noticed some changes in the way people react to corporate ed reform. And so what happened is Paul Vallis is a hero to the corporate ed reformers for his accomplishments, if you can call them that, in New Orleans and Chicago, but he might be on his way out of his current job in Bridgeport, Connecticut, thanks to a school board election. A slate of Democratic Party candidates that were backed by the Working Families Party, which is a an interesting institution we've discussed a little bit on this show that is mostly a presence in New York and has a very big presence in Connecticut. Um, Sometimes they endorse Democratic candidates. Sometimes they run their own candidates. So in this case, they backed three Democrats who were primarying three current members of the school board. Three other members on the school board are Working Families Party members that took over the seats that had been reserved for an opposition party, which had been, of course, formerly Republicans. What happens now is that the overwhelmingly Democratic state is expected to elect these three Democrats to the school board, and then there will be a majority that is not a big fan of charter school-loving, budget-cutting Paul Vallis. Ball writes that the election surprised both the local Democratic Party machine and, of course, the ed reformers, who are known for pouring lots of money into school board elections around the country. We've probably mentioned before how um, tech moguls like Sheryl Sandberg and Mark Zuckerberg like to throw money at school boards that are far away from where they live and that our own billionaire soon-to-be ex-mayor Michael Bloomberg has spent money on a school board election in San Diego. So with all that money floating around, this is justifiably a pretty big win for anti-corporate reform union-backed candidates. 
This week, the Huffington Post had a great story from Kim Basson and Caroline Fairchild called Abercrombie Dress Code Enables Discrimination, Insiders Say. This story looks at particularly examples of workers who dress a certain way because of their religion, including wearing a Christian cross, uh, a string that was put on a worker's wrist in a Hindu ceremony, workers who wear hijab, and Bassin and Fairchild talked to a number of people who work or have worked for Abercrombie or subsidiary Hollister who talk about examples like being told that it was okay to work there uh, as someone who wears a hijab, but then being sent into the back room whenever a higher-up level manager was coming through the store. They talk about a series of lawsuits that get at the question of to what extent Abercrombie should be required to accommodate having workers of different religions and different religious practices when ostensibly the worker's job is to provide customer service. And the claims that Abercrombie has made, essentially that the appearance of their workers and the very specific way they dress and what they do or don't wear is core to their business model. That, in fact, as they note, the people who are doing the customer interaction are referred to as, quote-unquote, models. And so this goes to some of the other questions around emotional labor and performance and what, what exactly it is in the service sector that workers are being paid to do or to be that Sarah and I have written about and discussed in the past. It's a great piece, and it's a must-read. Again, Abercrombie Dress Code Enables Discrimination, Insiders Say. We will have a very exciting announcement coming up next week. In the meantime, tweet at DissentMag, tweet with the hashtag Belabor, send us things you'd like to have explained, send us stories you'd like to have covered, let us know how you are laboring or being belabored or not laboring out in the United States and beyond. And we will have an update on whether the evil Republicans managed to pass their evil, evil food stamp cuts. See you soon. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Hate to end the hell not, we can't go. society has enslaved me and it's crazy, cause daily it gets hard.